good scent gives birth to love and life. We foster passion to grow geniuses which lift humanity. And tailor technology to preserve liberty in balance with nature. Welcome, Welcome to Radical. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents, boys and girls. I'm your host, Shane Hazel. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, I've got an outstanding guest for you guys today and uh, wanted to first talk and say, hey, thank you guys all for signing up for uh, the Bitcoin Maximalist. Those that you have, uh, people that are concerned about where their dollars are at, whether they're in 401ks, IRAs, and you've got all the other things in your life taken care of in terms of preparation. Um, thank you guys for signing up. You can find that at radicalpod.com under the Bitcoin Maximalist. And uh, if you're looking to move your fiat dollars and wealth into a asymmetric asset that's going to provide not only for you, but for generational wealth for you and your family for <laughs> generations to come, uh, please go check it out. If you would like to support the show, you can do it through Cash App. The cash tag is Shane Hazel. And thank you guys for all supporting the show. I really appreciate that. You can listen to it uh, out there on, oh gosh, I always forget the name of the this this app and I, I shouldn't. Fountain FM. Uh, I had to check real quick. Fountain FM, you can earn sats. I can earn sats uh, through the Lightning Network for just listening to the show. So I uh, hope you guys go check out Fountain FM. Uh, today, I've had a guest that I came across and I was like, man, I, I got to have him on the show. Um, he was on BTC Sessions over there with Ben uh, and he was just ranting like an absolute Bitcoin maniac. And for me, you know how it is. Like I, I, I try to find people that are not only genuinely smart, but also genuinely passionate about uh, what they're doing. I don't care what it is, honestly. It's, it's, it's like, how, how, do we, how do we get people motivated uh, to this point to where they are just so deep into this that they can explain it to anybody and they can explain it passionately uh, because it matters, right? Uh, so my guest today is CJ Constantinos, and I hope I'm saying that right, CJ. Um, he blew me away with some rants, uh, that I saw over on BTC sessions and did some other research on you. And I was just like, man, I've got to have this man on the show. Uh, we're going to, we're going to explode some brains, but we're going to get into this. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let me tell you that intro got me pumped up. <laughs> I, I tell you what, Dan Smots does not disappoint. He's a, he's a great guy. If you guys are looking for video production, I'm, I plug him like, Every time I do a live show, Dan Smots uh, is out there. The system is down is his podcast, and he does some amazing work for uh, guys like myself and like libertarians and stuff like that out there. So uh, without further ado, um, when when you came across Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin was still, I think, probably in its infancy. Uh, we were talking before the show. You graduated high school in 2009. Uh, you were out of school in 2014 from University of Central Florida. And you made the comment to me that everything you paid to learn in school was a bunch of bullshit. And you found Bitcoin and it was like, here it is. Here's some truth. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a wild experience because I got shell-shocked. I just took on all this debt. I was paying crazy prices for, for these classes. And I think they were high-quality classes. When I look back on it, I, I'm happy I took those classes because it helped me understand the enemy. 
you know, thoroughly. Yeah. But when I started learning about Bitcoin, I'm like, wow, I, how comes I was never even just told about like this idea is wrong or here's a different school of thought. It was, it was hidden and, and I got hooked. So ever since then, I, it, it wasn't like I bought Bitcoin, like I, you, someone buys gold and they just store it and they have it just in case. When I, after I bought Bitcoin, ugh, I went to the bottom of the rabbit hole, planted some TNT and dug it deeper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, all right, man, uh, I, I know there are other holes here. Like, let's just open Pandora's box. Like once you once you find a treasure trove like that, and it's, it's I think it's very interesting some of the uh the, the language you use because I, I am one of those people that is a stickler for meaning and definition of language. And you talk about, you know, being in, in, in the bed of the enemy over there, like seeing firsthand, you know, what they're subscribing and indoctrinating with uh, through whether it's high school or, you know, further education in uh, college. When, when you see that, like I saw the same thing because I went in and did, um, you know, international business and international affairs and saw, you know, what they were, would they say about the IMF, the, yeah. the WHO, all the, you know, non-governmental organizations and how, you know, the American all fit into it. And you're sitting there going like, oh, wow, like this is, this is an interesting take. I did not go really the, the financial route like you did, I believe. Um, and to see that behind the curtain, I imagine um, you can probably expand on this they only taught keynesian economics yeah that's absolutely right i mean no mention of austrians no never not even not even a whisper and no address of what money really was it was just you start out in the curriculum and and it's just kind of like everybody thinks they know what money is they don't they don't differentiate between money and currency how currency is a derivative of debt how it was the derivative of gold, all that is just skipped over. And it's just like money is what we say it is. And you don't need to question that. You don't need to learn about that. There is no history there. Money's always been money. And the reality is that the dollar's only been around for 100 years. And the last 52 years, it hasn't even been the original dollar. So that, you know, these like, currency lifespans are very short and they hide that cycle uh, so that we keep the same rule set every reset they perform. And these resets are performed cyclically under everybody's nose, usually masked by war, kind of typical false flag event that takes everybody's attention. And they're more worried about maintaining their quality of life versus actually learning what's going on, providing a solution, changing, and then moving forward. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. The, this idea, um, and, and let's get into this real quick, because I think I saw a tweet from you out there. There is $1.5 quadrillion in terms of derivative debt that is out there, which is going, This I think this is the absolute nuclear bomb that is going to destroy everything. Um, let, let's give us some understanding of, I think a lot of people don't understand what derivatives are first and foremost. You made, you know, the one statement there, you know, that cash right now is a, uh, or was a derivative of gold, but since we don't have that anymore, it's like, all right, well, you know, what are we actually talking about here? So help us first and foremost, define derivatives for the average, you know, human being out here. Yeah. So a derivative can be thought of as just representative value. 
I dollar was backed by gold when it was first created. And the reason that they did that is because you can't go into the store and buy a loaf of bread with gold. You know, where you gonna chip it up and weigh it, it makes sense. So they said, you know what? Let's create some paper currency units that will be derivative. There'll be representative value that represents the underlying gold. And it'll make it easier for us to trade. And it was actually a pretty good idea because it increased monetary velocity. It allowed the economy to grow and expand. It was based on a commodity credit that was backed by real world equity, or in other words, proof of gesture's work. But in 71, that's when everything changed. So I'm sure some of your followers are well aware of WTF happened in 1971.com. But that website has phenomenal charts that track all different types of trends, financial, social, et cetera. And it's just amazing to see what happened when the dollar was no longer representative of the underlying gold equity and instead became representative of debt. And the real problem is that debt is the promise of tomorrow's production. So today, when we spend money, we're actually pulling demand from the future. What we're spending is borrowed from tomorrow. When debt was not backing the dollar, and equity was backing the dollar, we are spending what was earned from yesterday. So that kind of flipped everything. And it's dangerous. And the reason that it's dangerous is because it allows you to create value based on what's projected to happen tomorrow instead of what we know already happened yesterday. And that's where the derivative market comes in because what's really happening is people are going to the bank and they're depositing their money. And a lot of them think the bank is just holding it for them until they need it. But legally, you're lending the bank your money. And after COVID, there is no fractional reserve. So you hear a lot of people talk about fractional reserves. (laughs) There is no fractional reserves. The banks don't even need our money to lend anymore. So that's that's a false understanding of how the system works. And what they do is when we make that deposit and lend them more money, there's something called basal banking, capital ratio requirements. So each bank wants their balance sheet to back those deposit liabilities by a certain ratio. So it'll give a small amount of what you deposit. They'll buy what's called a cash equivalent, which isn't cash but the politicians and the bankers work together in order to define an asset that can be valued as cash on the balance sheet, but can also generate profit for the custodian. So the bank and the custodian holds the cash equivalent, which is the government debt, which is producing a yield. In the meantime, the dollars in your account are producing a, a smaller yield. So they're kind of arbitraging or taking advantage of their customers by investing in government debt, but just telling them that they're holding dollars and paying them a smaller amount of interest than what the cash equivalent is paying. Now, here's the scary part. They don't put all of our deposit and buy the cash equivalent. They only take a small ratio of that deposit and back it with the cash equivalent. Then they take all the extra leftover money that you lend them and they go to the derivative market or what I like to call the casino. And what they do is they make directional bets on the market. So yeah, they, there are what's called delta neutral positions where there are market makers, you know, money market funds where there is no directional risk. 
but they are taking a large portion of this money and making strategic bets based on their outlook, based on their model, based on their equations, on where they think the market's going to go as they co-op with the Fed and with the politicians in order to profit. And the bad part is that when they do profit, that profit goes to the shareholders. That, per- that profit goes to the CEOs in form of bonuses. It doesn't get delivered back to the person who actually lent them the money. And we, the people, are the lenders. And the government and the bank are the borrowers. So they, of course, they've rigged the system that debt becomes an asset to the borrower and a liability to the lender. Anybody who has common sense would never want to lend money for lower than the inflation rate because you're in real terms, you're losing. But they've rigged the system this way. And that derivative market is kind of just, if I can point to any one place in the economy of where do we describe, where do we show an example of how corrupt what's going on is, it's that derivative market. Because they're using leverage 10x, 50x with our money. And they're making bets with our money. And it's immoral. And, it really is. And, and, and let's, let's, I mean, let's put it in a historical perspective, right? Is when these, this, this casino that's out there for dollars, whatever it is, which, you know, there's, there's so many of them and so many different scams and Ponzi uh, here. When you're talking about the $1.5 quadrillion that is derivative of, you know, the, the debt of the United States, where we are the asset, the people are the asset. And this, the, the liability is, um, you know, is, is taken on by, by us through force and coercion. What you're looking at now is this giant system that just sucks the wealth right out of America and whoever's in dollars for that matter. And like, and, and it obviously hurts, you know, uh, countries who are in dollars that have, you know, like, you know, very small economies first and foremost. So when we, when we see this, historically the bankers have always 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 bet huge and never paid and so if we're looking at this giant bet of 1.5 quadrillion dollars where this is going to absolutely go tits up we are looking at an absolute financial meltdown because a lot of times you know when when i talk to to you know guests and everything you know we'll talk to you know 31 trillion dollars in debt 200 trillion plus in unfunded liabilities not to mention on top of all of that which doesn't even which is eclipsed by orders of magnitude 1.5 trillion in bets in you're just in, in derivatives you're just sitting there going like oh my god not only is this thing going to break but it is going to absolutely collapse the entire empire. There's no band aid. There's nothing, you know, like I, I don't want to be that guy on a Monday that's like, hey, man, <laughs> we're all fucked. But at the same time, like I don't think people really understand it. So I think it's a beautiful explanation. Um, well, the, one more thing I'd like to sure. add to that is that sure. the real problem is the leverage because they're taking the, the back end collateral and they're levering it up. So, you know, it's $1.5 quadrillion, but it's not one-to-one. It's levered equity, and it's our equity that's being levered. And the the danger of that is that if the underlying collateral starts to lose value, 
like it is now because of the Fed's monetary policy of raising interest rates to fight inflation, yeah. which hopefully we get into. We're, we're, we're going to hit inflation right after this because I think it is the key to why this is so important. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. So as that collateral is being devalued, even if your bet is going the right way, you can still be liquidated because the underlying equity isn't matching the margin requirement in order to maintain the position. So that's a lot about what the Fed's recent uh, bank term funding program is about. Well, don't worry. We'll value your collateral at par. You don't have to worry about the the loss of principal value. It's okay. And that's, (laughs) you know, that just shows how big of a problem these leveraged bets are because if the underlying collateral isn't valued at par, literally the whole system, the whole house of cards starts to fall apart. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, uh, Jack Mahler's made a really good point not too long ago on some, you know, national broadcast where he's like, are you kidding me? We're like, we're, we're, we're trading at par. You guys have got to be the dumbest people on earth if you believe that from, you know, the, the Fed or the FDIC or anybody else in the, in the financial territory. Oh, yeah, like, we're at par. Sure, make that bet there, uh, Main Street. Like, that. it's such a, I don't know, it, it, when when you know this stuff, like you're sitting there going, like, no, guys, uh, we're 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 far from par. We're we're far from par. And here's the reason why is because of inflation. Um, I think you described this beautifully in in one of your videos. Uh, it may have been even with Ben, um, or uh, maybe uh, Nico on Simply Bitcoin when talked about the difference between inflation and hyperinflation. Uh, and I've been saying it for a while, like guys, you don't realize like we, we are just sitting in a trust bubble right now. Like there's, there's nothing else that's really holding up the dollar other than sentiment. Um, you put this in, in much more poetic terms, uh, go ahead and, and help everybody understand why we are sitting in hyperinflation, not just a recession, not just a depression. Like we were there. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two, there's two main points to this. And the first point is that the only difference between inflation and hyperinflation is trust. Every system I've studied, every hyperinflationary event that's taken place, they try to define it mathematically. But really, economics is a science. And there is no one way to mathematically say, at this exact point, hyperinflation begins. It's just not true because it's based on the trust of the people. As soon as the people get to the point where they say, hey, sir, I need to be able to be paid every day because I'm getting paid every other week. And now I go to the grocery store and I'm getting much less stuff and I can't live like this. So I either need to get paid every day or I'm going to go to somebody who's going to pay me every day. So we're not at that point yet, but we're quickly being driven down that direction. And the way that they define inflation is not helping us at all because the government definition of inflation is a lot. It is false definition because they're saying to all of us, and this is what they use to justify interest rates going up, that we are the problem. The people are the problem. We the people, the people who have deposited our savings and they took all the leverage bets, now we're the problem. And they got to increase the price of money. Here's the problem. If we were the real source of inflation, GDP would be through the roof. Right. Because what they're saying is, hey, the economy is so hot, the economy is so strong that everybody is buying stuff. The velocity of money is high. And because of that, 
prices are being forced up. But here's a good thing. If that were the case, we would be cheering on higher prices because the cure for high prices is higher prices. Because as prices go higher, producers become more profitable. When producers become more profitable, they reinvest in their supply. When they expand their supply, the marginal cost of production goes down. That means that if you make 1 million water bottles, it's cheaper per water bottle if you make 100,000 water bottles. So for a producer, it's not about a higher price necessarily. It's about moving more units. You make much more money if you move a million water bottles versus 100,000. And we would be cheering on those higher prices because producers would use their profit to expand supply, lower price so that they could increase demand and more move more units. And that would be a healthy, strong economy. And that's, that's not really what inflation is. Inflation has nothing to do with that. That's a healthy, strong economy that is giving you a foundation to build on top of. Inflation is directly correlated to the amount of currency units in circulation. That's it. When price goes up and down based on supply and demand, that's a supply demand price equilibrium. That's a price discovery mechanism designed to signal to entrepreneurs who create jobs and who create productivity within the economy to come to this industry for profit. Profit is a good thing. The profit signal that we see with the price discovery signal based on supply demand equilibrium. But inflation doesn't have to do with that. It's separate. It has to do with the amount of currency units in circulation. So see, the government comes out and tells a nasty lie. And they say inflation is the general rise in prices. No, that's incorrect. Inflation is the general rise in prices based on the creation of new currency units, stealing the purchasing power from the rest of the currency units. In other words, if supply and demand stayed exactly the same, but the amount of currency units in circulation increased, even though supply and demand is the same and you would expect no price change, prices would go up because the value of the currency is going down. Yep. And they completely ignore that. They don't teach it in school. They never say it from the podium. They ignore it and they attack it for people who come out and say, this. even Milton Friedman, uh, Nobel Prize winner, is, is just ignored and kind of like Trump just deleted He's gone. We don't want to hear your opinion. You're gone. You're deleted. And that is where the source of all of these problems are starting. The government and the bank are creating an insane amount of money. Yeah. I mean, 40 percent in two years. Well, that's it, and, and, and it's it's an order of magnitude problem, too, is one of the things that I've you know uh, caught on to in the past where somebody, you know, simplified it for, you know, a crane eater like myself, right? Is like when you when you talk about millions, billions, and trillions, you're talking, you know, if you were to divide that down into seconds, you know, uh, what what is it? Millions is something like 13, uh, 13 years, uh, where I think what billions is 30 years. And then if you look at trillions in seconds, you're talking about what is it, 30,000 years or something like that. So I mean, the the jump in magnitude from millions to billions to trillions, if we're printing $7 trillion in, in a year, and then following it up with more and more like, I don't know, what was it 2 trillion last year. And so we're, we're up above 8 $9 trillion in two years, that amount of money, which it's like you said, 40% of, you know, what we 
already incurred. But the thing is, is even in our lifetime, since you graduated in, in 2009, right? Since you graduated in 2009, I, re- I really, I remember when we were talking about the debt in less than trillions in my lifetime. And now, you know, when we're, we're sitting here, you know, entertaining the idea, and I say we, the, the, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve under Janet Yellen uh, and, and these criminals out there, when they're talking about taking the debt of the U.S. up to $50 trillion, and just like, there is, there is no ceiling, it doesn't exist, and for these guys, they are going for broke. Like, they are going to get as much as they can in that time, and I guarantee you, um, a lot of them are buying hard assets, including Bitcoin, do you think? Absolutely. They have to, they have, there's no benefit to them to come out and support Bitcoin. Just like there's no benefit for the world's billionaires who know exactly what's going on to come out and say, oh, I'm going to keep using Bitcoin. That creates a disadvantage for them. They're going to use their cash flow to stack and accumulate as much as they can. They're going to keep their mouth shut because if they open it, they're going to end up with less Bitcoin. That's right. And those numbers that you said are from the Congressional Budget Office. Yeah. These are not just one person coming out and saying, well, you know, we think we're going to push it higher. No, these are official numbers that show that the deficit is going to continue to grow. Last year, I believe it was over $1.3 trillion. This year, it'll be over $1.4. Yeah. And there's a modest increase as time goes on. But what they're not accounting for in CDO is that when this next financial crisis, which we're in right now, everybody's just in denial, when the real crap hits the fan, and they have to actually print large amounts of money, not just $2 trillion to cover the difference between principal and par value. Yeah. But when they actually have to provide liquidity, that's a definition of inflation. And they're going to be providing liquidity to the extent that what they did for COVID looked small. Yeah. I mean, just like COVID made QE1, 2, 3 look very small. Like, oh, back what we did back then after the great financial crisis, that was nothing. That was just a little bit of money. Look what happened during COVID. Trillions, trillions of dollars. Well, this next one is going to be double, maybe even triple. And yeah. if, it's the, if it's the derivative market, it could be 100x. It could, it could take so much money that the rate of inflation will catch people off guard. And that is what's going to stack the trust. That's what I think we're heading into right now. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that's hyper hyper Bitcoinization world right there? Is you know people are going to just fly out of the banks? And I mean, to the, to that point, I mean, this came out earlier today. Uh, it was trending on Twitter that Credit Suisse has lost sixty eight billion in assets in this last quarter. What it you know goes on further uh, in this article to talk about is that not only in this this quarter, but in uh, at the end of last year, they were at I think as over a hundred and fifty billion had been taken out by their investors and you know that that's credit suisse that, like when when all this started back in like 2018 2019 you know that the bet was on the swiss franc if you were you know a in a, a foreign exchange uh you know holder or shit coin right like you were like man I'm, I'm out of the dollar i'm going to the swiss franc and so um when you have people who are now absolutely emptying uh credit suisse of hundreds of billions of dollars effectively and now it's been nationalized by ubs where you like we're seeing a trend not only here in the united states where they nationalize you know silicon valley bank um you know overnight with 200 was 200 billion 
Um, and then, you know, you're looking at about 200 billion there. When you look at these places that are being at, you know, like basically liquidate, giving, you know, liquidity on demand now, right? Like we're, we're not, we're not doing this thing of fractional reserve banking. We're just giving liquidity, you know, digits here and there. Like we are that's, in a faster spiral. For these people. Yeah. They believe in modern monetary theory, which means the government can create any amount of money and it doesn't affect anything. Yeah. There, is, there is no effect to creating money. That's what they believe. And they use that justification to bail out wherever the stresses are. But the real fact of the matter is, and I know this because I went through the balance sheet myself, and it took me like a month to do this. Every single bank in the world, and it, I shouldn't say every single, nine out of ten banks are insolvent. Seriously, they really are. Yeah. There is, they assets are less than liability. Every single one of them, because they all bought into the scheme, because there is a partnership, it's a co-op between the banks and the politicians and the government. They enable each other. You know, the government can run their deficit budget. The banks can extend credit because right? they create dollars too. When the banks extend credit, that increases the dollar supply. And not just U.S. banks, international banks yep. who extend dollar-denominated loans increase the dollar supply. So that's why we're seeing inflation on a global scale, because they're all following the same game plan. They might change rates at a different pace. It might seem like the Fed is the leader and everybody just does what they do, but they're all doing the same thing. And that's why the world is facing this inflation problem at the same time. Nobody took the other side of the bet. And now what you're starting to see is some of the smarter money is saying, whoa, I'm on the wrong side of the bet and I got to get repositioned. And as they start to reposition, the holes in the balance sheet start to reveal themselves. And their solution is provide liquidity. But when you provide liquidity, that's inflation. Yeah. Yeah. If we, weirdest time in history where you have inflation uh, you know, tracking upwards, and you also have liquidity at the same time tracking upwards, and you're just like, like if you if you don't understand, most of the time, if you have interest tracking upwards, what they're trying to do is constrict the money supply. If they are, you know, bring bring the money back into the bank at the same time, if you were just printing money, well, you know, that's going up. Like that was their that was their last tool. That like that was their tool is to be able to raise interest rates or or I should say lower interest rates as they accumulated uh, more inflation. And so when, when they did that, I guess this is the last time around, I was like, Oh man, it's, it's really, really broken now. Like this is, this is super broken. The, the problem is the debt because in the seventies, when they raised the interest rate to fight inflation, yeah. we didn't have a large debt. Yeah. So there was no interest rate burden, but what happens now as they raise interest rates, they have to roll over, $32 trillion worth of debt. Plus they have to finance their 200 trillion of unfunded liabilities and they have to do it at a higher interest rate. So if it's at a higher interest rate, it requires the creation of more currency units. So as they raise the interest rates, they're actually causing more inflation and it, it didn't work that way before. And that's my real fear is that they think they're pumping the brakes but really they're slamming down on the gas and yeah. the, the banks too, because 
everybody's thinking about it through the, the lens of a borrower, right? Oh, interest rates go up, so people are going to borrow less. Okay, quick question for you. Why is credit at all time high? If the banks are saying no and people don't want to borrow, why is credit at all time high? Yeah. Because you got to think about it through the lens of the, the bank. I heard we were over $17 trillion in personal household credit card debt the other day, and I was just like, Seventeen yeah. trillion. Uh, that, it's all time high. Yeah, and and, and the, you blame those people because debt is an asset to the borrower. So if you, I mean, if you now I got the forty year mortgage, right? Yeah. I think if you buy a house with a forty year mortgage, you're a genius. You're going to be able to go outside and take dollars off off the ground and go pay your mortgage. Well done, because debt is an asset for the borrower, not the lender. Yeah. So the incentive system is broken. Let's maybe let's entertain that for a second too, because uh, debt jubilee, right? Like a a wiping out of debt when this is all just absolutely crashed and burned, and you know we're sitting in this I don't know uh, this medium, uh, this this kind of this purgatory in between, like what it is and what it's gonna be. Um, do you see that happening? Do you see these people like, hey, you listen, there's no there's no bank that you contracted with for your house, for your car, for your student loans. None of that stuff exists anymore. You know, and, and do you see something like that in the in the I don't know, maybe this summer, this this near this near future? Yeah, so the way debt resets is inflation. Yeah. That's how they reset the debt. Because when they print more money and the and the currency units become worth less, the the payment is a lower burden. So if you think of it in terms of mortgage, maybe your mortgage is like three grand. Well, that three thousand dollar payment in two thousand nineteen was much more of a burden to your cash flow than three thousand dollars today in twenty twenty three. And the reason is because of inflation. So inflation is how you reset the debt, and that's what the government is doing. The more money they print, the less of a real purchasing power burden there is to actually settle the debt. And then eventually where this leads, the road that we're going down is that the government themselves will also be able to walk out the door and pick the money off the ground to pay their debt. So the real reset, the process of reset is through inflation. But somewhere along the line, people are gonna say, the, the line in the sand has been crossed because my wages are not keeping up with inflation and now my quality of life is too low. So I know I don't want to work for dollars anymore. Yeah. I know I can't save in dollars. I don't want to work for dollars anymore. And boom, that's the catalyst. It doesn't require any more print. Whenever that trust is lost, whether they print more or not, the dollar will go into hyperinflation. So I think we're slamming up against that wall right now, um, and, and we're seeing what's funny is the, the major movers in the world, and I'm talking state-level actors, China, India, Brazil, uh, the, the broker peace deal uh, by China between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, you've got, you've got 3.3 billion people in these economies that are going to a commodity-backed you know, type of economy versus this you know, petrodollar-backed economy, which is no longer going to be a petrodollar economy if they can't buy uh, from Saudi and, and the rest of these guys because they don't want, you know, this, this you know, really cheap inflated currency. So when this slams in uh, to high gear, which I think is probably this summer, um, where, do you, where do you see everything going? Yeah. 
So the, <clears throat> I think you made a great point. And it's, it's just pure that baseball is an American sport because three strikes and you're out. Yeah. And when you talk about the rest of the world and the very unique circumstances post-World War II and all the work and effort that went into Bretton Woods and getting the dollar to be accepted as that reserve currency, the the circumstances to bring that about again are just almost impossible. So we took advantage of that situation perfectly. Those people were OG. They really knew what they were doing. Now, here's the problem. First strike, we took the dollar off hold. The dollar was supposed to be a derivative of equity. Well, 71, we made a derivative debt. Yeah. Strike two, we expanded the supply faster than we were supposed to. There was supposed to be responsible fiscal and monetary policy. Because remember, as the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, the United States actually has the privilege to be able to create more currency units without creating inflation. Because as the demand for the dollar grows globally, then what happens is if you don't print more of them, the value of the dollar goes up and that creates inflation. And that's the evil monster of MMP. So we have to print more dollars in order to maintain stability. And if we had proper management and the system wasn't being abused, I think it actually could happen. So I want history to remember it's the mismanagement by the bankers and the politicians that caused this problem. Don't let them point their finger at the system. It was their greediness. It was their corruption that led to where we are today. And that second strike is the abuse of that management of the system. The third and final strike is the weaponization of the dollar. The the, the deal was, look, if we're going to use your currency, you, you can't tell us how to think. You can't tell us how to live. You know, if, if we, it doesn't matter what our religion is. It doesn't matter what our source of wealth from our economy is. The dollar is the reserve currency, and it's not going to be biased against me. Well, Russia put it on left because we weaponized the dollar, and we shot ourselves in the foot. We were in the position of power, so we don't make the first move. We don't. If someone tries to make a move, you dodge and you make a counter strike. We're already in a position of power. You don't risk anything. But we weaponized the dollar against Russia, which allowed them to make a counter strike, which was saying, hey, you're going to need gold or ruble to buy our oil then. Because now that we don't have our, we just took our reserves, we don't have access to the dollar. What choice do we have? Yeah. It's almost like the elite <clears throat> planned it up like that. They're like, well, hey, look, if they do this, it's war. But if we give that, if we make them do it, well, it's just our incompetence. Well, it's always their incompetence that leads to this crap. So we gave them the excuse to ask for the ruble and ask for gold in return for oil, which Europe needed, regardless of what they wanted, regardless of their climate change, all this other BS they used to justify shutting down nuclear plants that don't have any power. Um, it, that was the third strike, yeah. the weaponization of dollars. So three strikes and you're out. Americans should know it. Baseball is an American game. <laughs> and we blew it. Yeah, And now you, you said it's exactly happening. The world is being forced to shift. Not yeah. because they, maybe, this is a value proposition of the dollar. Other countries get to extract value from their citizens too. 
if we all stay in the fiat system, it's a war of attrition. Yeah. It's not who can print the fastest. It's who can print the slowest. Where's that balance between the government and the citizenry where we can print money and extract value, but they don't get mad enough? That's the balance we want to find. We want to extract as much value from our people as we possibly can. So there was a happy medium. But now the rest of the countries are saying, listen, if you're just going to take billions and billions of dollars from you, and we have to believe in your rainbow flag, and we have to believe in everything you say, everything you say is true, and it doesn't matter what we think, forget it. We'll yeah. do this our own way. And they're building their systems right now. Absolutely. There, what do they, they used to call it? There was an index that they used to basically keep track of you know, how the people felt about basically life and how they were, they were doing, you know, and I forgot the name of that damn index, but you don't hear about it anymore, right? You don't ever hear about this uh, quality of life index probably is, is what I'm referring to the, this quality of life index where man, people being strapped financially, people, you know, going into debt, wondering how it's all going to work, going and just being reminded of it every time they go in to buy whatever it is, possibly, you know, these first time, you know, a younger generation than mine, not being able to find affordable housing, right? Like, like, really, like the American dream for a lot of kids that came out of school to, to, to think that you're going to, you know, borrow at 7% interest on that, like, a lot of guys are going, Oh, man, I don't, I don't think I can do this, like, or I'm going to have something that is either further out uh, in, in, in rural America than I want that, you know, makes no sense for a commute. It, it, I don't know, a lot of stuff is imploding. Let's talk about some hope. I mean, we've got another, you know, 1520 minutes here. Um, because a lot of what we can do is identify problems for people, right? It's like a lot of people that come in here are new to Bitcoin. Um, they they're they're they don't quite trust it. And when we present the you know the idea that hey, look, your dollar, your investments, everything, whatever you're in in terms of the dollar is in a lot of trouble. Like you, it's a ticking time bomb right now. You're obviously a dad, and you're you're like you're super excited about you know Bitcoin for. I imagine not just yourself, but like for your kids and generations to come. Why? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the first half of this has been kind of like, oh my God, this guy sucks. <laughs> but you're right. There is hope. And the hope is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the solution. Bitcoin solves all the problems because what it does is it takes the, away the ability for any government or any centralized power to create more currency and that that taking away the ability to create inflation protects the saver's ability to save and that's what empowers us and our children because we know when we trade our time and energy for fiat currency units you better spend those currency units fast because if you try to save those currency units you're just going to buy less and less over year but with bitcoin when you save in bitcoin you're going to be able to buy more and more throughout the years. Now, people are saying, well, what if the price starts to go the other way? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Bitcoin was strategically designed to store your time and energy through space. That's what it was designed to do through its difficulty adjustment and through its having. So there's no other asset, no other financial instrument in the world that was strategically designed to do what Bitcoin does. It truly is a new era of money. 
because we can confirm absolute digital scarcity. And even with gold, you can't do that. You know, every once in a while with gold, you find these articles where there's an asteroid passing by. And if we were able to capture that, everybody would be a billionaire. So, you know, even though there's only a limited amount of gold here on Earth, there's an unlimited amount in the universe. Bitcoin is the only asset in existence that we know for a fact how many of those units exist. Not only that, but we know the inflation schedule of those units. So as those units are being released into the economy, we know a guaranteed secured inflation adjusted schedule. So businesses can make proper plans, people can make proper plans, and that changes the entire incentive structure of the entire system. And Bitcoin is at the core of it. So what I really want people to understand about Bitcoin is all those people who say Bitcoin can go to zero, that's a lot. Yeah. That's like saying gold can go to zero. Now, CJ, you're saying something good about gold. What's going on here? <laughs> Let's talk about producer economics quickly. I'm going to do my best to keep this simple. If it costs $1,800 to produce an ounce of gold, what happens if the price goes under that $1,800? That means the producers will stop producing the gold. Yep. That means the supply of gold will start to drop. As the supply of gold drops, but the demand stays the same, the price can go up. As the price goes up, eventually it'll go back above the $1,800, and producers will come back into the market and start creating more supply. And that is the commodity cycle. Well, Bitcoin's commodity cycle works a little bit different than that. How it works is there's a finite supply cycle. So it doesn't matter how many people want to create Bitcoin. It doesn't matter how many people want to mine Bitcoin. There's only a certain amount to ever be created. So as the base layer of demand on Bitcoin grows, and Bitcoin is growing faster than the internet, it's growing faster than any other asset class we've ever seen. So we have an extremely fast base layer of demand growth, and we have a limited supply. The basic laws of economics tell us the price is going to go up, just like it would for the dollar, right? If we didn't create more supply of the dollar, and the rest of the world was demanding dollars, the price of the dollar would go up. So this is just a basic economics 101 concept. It's an easy to understand truth yep. to see why Bitcoin, with a growing base layer of demand and growing use cases, is going to go up in price over time. Now, the difficulty adjustment and the having are bonus boosters to the economic truth that supports Bitcoin as an asset class. Yeah. Now, these additional use cases, such as Bitcoin as collateral, let's replace government debt with Bitcoin. With Bitcoin as commoditized energy, let's replace the printing of fiat currency units with the production and energy input in winning a Bitcoin block subsidy. And finally, let's go to the free market internet economy, the only economy in the world that offers free interest rates on its money. Every other economy in the world tries to tell us what the interest rate should be. The interest rate is the price of money. Yeah. Well, if they can't tell us the price of milk and chicken, why can they tell us the price of money? It doesn't make sense. It should be a free market supply demand price equilibrium so that everybody can understand the supply of the money and the demand for that money. Once we do these things, the natural economic cycles 
will be built on a foundational cornerstone that can support growth. When, the, when the, you have an inverted pyramid and you have debt acting as collateral that's being levered out to build an economy, eventually the house of cards is going to fall. And that's what I want people to prepare for with Bitcoin. Sure, you can have gold, you can have silver, but Bitcoin is our hope. Bitcoin is truth money. And these people hate truth. Hell yeah, so they do. To it. Um, and, 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 and real quick too, we are coming up on the 2024 halving. And this is not just another halving. This is a halving that I don't think most people have been exposed to or understand the significance of it because you know, we are getting to that point where, you know, the, the, the supply side of Bitcoin is going to now drop below that of gold. And when we get to that point, you know, we're, we're talking about an asset that's harder than gold. That's right. You, you agree with that? Yeah. Bitcoin will become, I mean, the thing is that there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. So it already is the hardest asset. Yeah. But the inflation will be then lower than the amount, in other words, the amount of Bitcoins that are released in the block reward right now make it about equal with the amount of gold that continues to be pulled out of the ground. But after the next halving, it will be the hardest money in the world. Now think about this in terms of gold. What if there was a halving in gold and overnight the cost to produce an ounce of gold went from 1800 to 3600? Well, are producers going to be able to sell it for less than it costs them to produce? Absolutely not. What do they do? They hold back supply. When they hold back supply against the consistent demand, price goes up. And that's exactly what happens with the Bitcoin habit. The cost to produce a Bitcoin will double overnight. As the inflow into the system continues against the lower supply, creates a positive price pressure. As the cost of pressure doubles and miners hold back supply, creates a positive price pressure. So all of the true economics, not the ones they teach you in school, but the ones that you learn after you dive into Bitcoin, the Austrian school of thought, all of these things are proven true through the reality of the last 14 years of Bitcoin's existence. The one of the last questions on Bitcoin, and this is just you know speculation on my point for asking, because I love asking like what if and fun questions, right? Is do you think we are already seeing miners hold back the sale of Bitcoin now in in, in hopes of making more on it after the having? Do you or do you think we're going to start to see that ramp up? late into 2023, early 2024, as we get closer to the halving? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it's such an individualized answer because the way I manage my farm is going to be different than the way some fiat bros manage their farm, right? And I think there's two things I want to address here. Number one, let me answer your question. And then number two, let me address why I think there's been diminishing returns in the market. You've heard of that diminishing return theory, yeah. right? So what's happening is as we get closer and closer to the halving, we're using a first in, first out accounting procedure. So I'm not sure that miners are going to technically hold back supply going into the halving, especially when the, a large portion of the hash rate is from these fiat maximalists who, have, who are fantastic businessmen 
They're fantastic uh, fundraisers. Uh, they, they have connections within the system. But what they don't understand is the Bitcoin mindset. So they're great businessmen, but horrible Bitcoiners. They're, they're, they're uh, low time horizon, in other words. Absolutely. Yeah. They get Bitcoin in and then sell it right away because a lot of times they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to lock in that profit. But what's really messed up is that their mindset is based on cash flow and capital efficiency. That asset equals liability. If I have an asset on my balance sheet and I can't create a liability from it, then I'm not being as capitally efficient as I should be. And with that mindset, they'll mine and sell and mine and sell. And then as price goes up after the halving, the reason I think we're seeing a diminishing return is because when profit margins get to 50, 60, 100%, they have a responsibility to, that, that supply has to hit the market. They can actually get in trouble if they try to keep it in their treasury. Mm. So each cycle, we've seen a shift from the majority of the hash being owned by OG miners who are hardcore Bitcoin maximalists. And sure, they'll get rid of some Bitcoins in order to finance their lifestyle. But for the most part, they're holding it for their children. But these new brand of miners who are public, who have this capital efficiency mindset, when the, when the profits get that high, the supply is having to hit the mark. There's no way it's going to escape that because they have a fiduciary responsibility. So I think we're going to continue to see some diminishing return because a large portion of the hash rate is owned by public companies with that capital efficient mindset versus those OG miners who sold what they needed to, but not any more than they needed to because they knew where this was going in the long run. Yeah. So it's, to, I kind of dodged your question, but I do think we're going to have price go up between now and the having price will go up because what we want to do as miners is we want to get that price exactly at our cost of production after the having. Because remember, on at that block, our cost doubles. No yep. mercy, no question, it doubles. So we need the price to be at cost, at least. So I do think there will be some holding back of supply through what I call the expansion phase, where I think Bitcoin, sometime between now and the end of the year, I think Bitcoin could go up as high as $50,000. But I, a lot of people will be calling for all, new all-time highs because there'll be technical analysts looking at the chart, breaking that 30K market structure resistance. That means the top of the range becomes the previous all-time high. So Bitcoin's going to go to all-time high. But it never worked that way because expansion is about miners preparing for the halving more so than right, anything else. So we will see some price expansion, but going into the 2023 halving, which should be towards the end of March, early April of next year, I expect the price of Bitcoin to be at its cost of production, somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000, hmm. depending on the growth of the network and the difficulty adjustment. And, and, and just for everybody, I mean, you're, you're a miner. What, what are you guys uh, typically seeing a range from in terms of um, the, the price of production now? Yeah, so right now it costs me, and I'm a little bit of a smaller miner. I pay a little bit of a higher kilowatt per hour, but it costs me around twenty thousand dollars to produce the Bitcoin right now. Yeah. So 
if the having were today, then tomorrow it would cost me forty thousand dollars, and that's where the price would need to be, or I'm not going to sell my Bitcoin, and, and that supply is going to drop. For the audience, if you if you think a doubling of cost and a doubling of price is one of those things that you uh, could could do well to get in beforehand on. You're absolutely right. Um, CJ, uh, man, I got, we, we could sit here and rap about this for hours, brother. Um, how, how do we help you, man? Like, it's one thing I love about having guests on is like, you know, what are you into uh, that we can help you with? Ooh, well, I kind of gave my life how I can help other people. <laughs> hey, like that, that, that's a worthy person to invest in. Yeah. So I, right now I'm working on what's called people's reserve. And People's Reserve is a business built around Bitcoin because I believe that in the future, all of finance is going to be built around Bitcoin equity. And the same type of credit markets that we saw when gold packed the dollar is going to be the same type of commodity credit markets we see after we transition away from the dollar into a Bitcoin standard. So this People's Reserve business is built around Bitcoin equity to offer products and services to governments, institutions, and individuals to be empowered by their most important source of wealth, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. And so just you know, follow along on Twitter, as CJ constantly knows, keep an eye out for People's Reserve. We are saying is we the people, because People's Reserve is truly about serving we the people and empowering we the people. It flips the script upside down. Traditional banks, are designed to extract value from their customers. There's not one thing a bank does to deliver value to their customers. It's unbelievable. And even when the fees are small, it's because they're making percentages with your money in the background. So they don't perform one service for their customers. They only extract value. We're designing people's reserve to deliver value. And that's what I would keep an eye on because when that starts, the more people who are involved and willing to learn are going to be the people who can help us because they're going to be telling family, they're going to be telling friends, and it's going to help with the transition away from the system that's extracting value from you and into a system that's delivering value to you. And not only delivering value to you, but deflationary value that is not only going to perfectly store your time and wealth, it is going to add to that over time which is I, one of the coolest things about this whole thing. Uh, minus the people. CJ, uh, one of the coolest guests I've ever had, man. And thank you for you know, your, your passion for all of this and to, to be able to explain it in a very succinct, uh, understandable way. I know some people are going to, you know, their, their brains are melting. They're probably going to have to re-listen to the show a couple times. But uh, at the same time, man, like great work i love what you're doing i love that you're putting this passion into enterprise uh to, to help other people brother so uh it's been my pleasure to have you here i look forward to seeing big things out of you follow cj you can follow him on uh twitter it's uh cj uh <laughs> uh and man i'll tell you what marines and reading we're not the best of that kind of stuff <laughs> brother uh great meeting you great talking to you until next time ladies and gents i love you i need you Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take just that.